0: Friends, if you have your Bible, I'd invite you to open it with me to 1 Peter chapter 4 as we continue a series of messages. We've had a few weeks away from them as Pastor Dave and Kelly Steppen brought messages to us. But let's return back to the letters of Peter. Now, something that came home to me fresh and new as we traveled uh, inland from the Aegean Sea into the inland of uh, modern-day Turkey, that that truly is the land of the Bible. We often think of the Holy Land and we sometimes mix it up with the, the land of the Bible or the promised land. Well, of course, the promised land is Israel. That's the land that God gave in promise to the people of faith, uh, Abraham and his descendants. But the land of the Bible, well, that encompasses uh, Egypt as the children of Israel sojourn there. Uh, the travels of the, uh, the wilderness wanderings, uh, the Sinai Peninsula through modern day Jordan into Israel. Jesus traveling up into Lebanon on his little side mission trip during his public ministry. And then of course the land of the New Testament is the land of the new church and the growth of the kingdom of God throughout the Roman Empire. And that takes in modern day Turkey. That takes in part of the Balkans. It takes in uh, Greece and Italy and Paul's, uh, dearest wish was to make it all the way to Spain to share the good news of the gospel. So we were able to go through the towns of the Bible. You would be able to stand in one spot and look down this beautiful Lycus River Valley with the snow-capped mountains on one side and hills on the other. And you say, well, there's Colossae, where the book of Colossians was written to. There's Laodicea that Jesus wrote a letter to. I'm in Hierapolis. The Colossian letter, Paul says, share it with the church in this town. Well, look over there down the valley a little further is Thyatira. And then there's Sardis. You take a left turn to go down to Ephesus. You get a sense of place that these are real people living in proximity to one another. Now, the land I went through was the land of the Apostle John, the Apostle Paul, the Barnabas and Silas, the missionary journeys. But the Turkish modern-day country, the Anatolian Peninsula, we were in what was called Asia. That was the uh, Roman province of Asia and Phrygia. But then Peter, he writes later in time, he writes this letter to Christians in the five Roman provinces along the Black Sea, just across from Crimea Ukraine and Russia where the conflict is going. And that was called like ancient Bithynia and Pontus. But it was very near. It was to people in modern day Turkey. That's where the church was growing. And remember, we've been looking at the theme of Peter's letter that he was writing to people that just didn't quite fit in. We once fit in when we were living in a fallen, sinful world. We were still far from God. But coming to know Jesus, being born again... And adopted into the very family of God makes such a profound change in someone, or it should, that you no longer fit in where you once did. Before I went away, we looked how people just we were like strangers. The the Bible, the, this book says we're like strangers and sojourners and travelers. We're not home. We're just passing through this life. And Peter says people will think you strange. Because you don't join in with them into the sinful life you once did. And then he continues the message today. He talks about living our lives in light of the end of them. I think you should always plan wisely. You should look at your life and never live it haphazardly, knowing that your time is limited. We often don't wake up to that fact until we are in an emergency room and the doctors have a grim prognosis for us or we're in a senior's home living out our final days, remembering with regret all the things we did that in retrospect just don't seem that important. The Bible says, number your days right to gain a heart of wisdom. And Peter will touch on that theme in a way that is, is fascinating by looking at the return of Jesus for each one of us. The book of James, which falls just before first Peter, the book of James says waiting for the return of Jesus is like being a farmer, like being a farmer a couple of weeks ago when the crop was in, the seeding was done, and all we needed now was rain. We have fertile soil. We have sunshine. We have All of the chemicals that modern science can add to make those plants grow, but without moisture, it all goes for naught. That patient waiting for rain, the book of James, James says it's like waiting for the return of Jesus. We see that a little earlier in James chapter 5, beginning in verse 7. James writes, Be patient then, brothers, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, and how patient He is for the autumn and spring rains. You too be patient, and stand firm, because the Lord's coming is near. Be patient, stand firm, for the Lord's coming is near. Now, throughout the New Testament, all of the Bible teachers and writers, you see them unanimously teaching that the return of Jesus was at hand it was near and that was based on jesus own words they expected to see the return of christ in their lifetimes remember when jesus on the mount of olives ascended to the father's right hand they stood there watching for him to come back it took angels to say men of galilee why do you stand looking into the sky this same jesus you saw he will come back But before then, Jesus said, you needed to take the good news to the uttermost parts of the earth. This isn't just geographical. This is chronological. As we see, there were generations upon generations yet unborn that Jesus wanted the gospel message to go to. We are his missionaries to the 21st century. No one has ever faced such a daunting task. There are more people alive between seven and eight billion souls in this world, most of whom have not yet heard the good news of Jesus. Our work is far from done. And so the Lord tarries until that work is complete. Now, we live expectantly. Jesus could come at any time. I always look a little doubtful at bible scholars or in times teachers who have such worked out plans that they even have things that preclude Jesus returning for instance they say well the lord won't return until the temple is rebuilt well that's not how the bible the bible writers felt even after the temple was destroyed in 70 ad you see paul john and others expecting jesus to come back at any time i say living an expectant life is part of who we are as Christians. We have the blessed hope. Every day should be lived in the light of Jesus' return. Because you know if He doesn't return in the air for you at His second coming, He's promised to return at your moment of death. He says, if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me. Christ is coming. And if you are His child through faith in jesus he's coming for you you don't know when that will be it could be today either his return in glory or his return in love for you we need to remember that and live in this time between the ages jesus inaugurated the last days the eschaton at his first coming And we live in those last days until the second coming when God wraps up history. I've called today's message, The End Is Near. So, so, so what? If the end is near, either for all mankind or for you in particular, how are you going to live your life? How then shall we live? If you knew, The doctors gave you ironclad promise. you got one year to live. Would you make any changes? Well, you'd probably scramble to see if your insurance was paid up or if you could add more to your policy. There's a number of practical things, but really, how would you live differently? How would your priorities change? Would you be less fearful to share your faith with your friends and family who don't know Jesus? Would you let go of old grudges and free yourself from that bitterness by forgiving others? How would you be different? The end is near, so what? Peter answers that question practically in a number of wonderful ways in First Peter, beginning in chapter 4. The first thing I think Peter says to do knowing that the end is near for you or for all of us is that we need to watch and pray. Watch and pray. That sounds familiar coming from the the pen of Peter, the apostle. Didn't Jesus once tell Peter he needed to watch and pray? Let's look at that. Peter writes, 1 Peter chapter 4, beginning in verse 7. Peter says, the end of all things is near. Therefore, be clear-minded and self-controlled so that you can pray clear-minded self-control peter's saying be alert be awake be spiritually sensitive to what's going on around you not only to the good that god is doing but to the devil's schemes to how things are working in the lives of those around you how your actions and words how your witness that you live out not only with your words but the life you live is affecting others We're all witnesses for Christ. We're either good witnesses or not so good witnesses. But the life you live is a witness to others. How is it? Peter says, be sober-minded. Be temperate. Temperate is a person not given to extremes, not flying off the handle, not excusing how you hurt others just because you have a bad temper. You can't help it. We can all help it, Peter says. And Peter should know. Peter was the apostle who was renowned for putting his foot in his mouth. Peter was bold, but he often went off wildly in the wrong directions. So Peter's writing from hard-learned experience. Be clear-minded. Be self-controlled so you can pray. Hmm. John says the return of Jesus is imminent as well. Peter says the end of all things is near. Live your life in light of Jesus return, either for you personally or for all mankind. A little bit later after 1st Peter we see in 1st John, 1st John 2:18, John writes, Dear children, this is the last hour, and as you have heard that the antichrist is coming, even now many antichrists have come. This is how we know it is the last hour. Not only do we live in the last days, but John says it's like the last hour of mankind. And we can tell it because the opposition to Jesus, the spirit of Antichrist, if not the historical figure of the Antichrist, who may very well be alive today, that the spirit of Antichrist is at work. We see it all around us. We see it in great movements as governments turn against, uh, common decency and morality. We see it in the lives we live in our neighborhoods. And what's going on? We live in the last hour, John says. Jesus' return is imminent. And that ought to make a difference for us. The Apostle Paul puts it so well in Romans. He says, he says, yes, it should make a difference. In Romans chapter 13, Paul talks about the difference that it makes for us. Paul says, and do this, understanding the present time. The hour has come for you to wake up from your slumber. Just as Peter said, be watchful, be awake. Because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Isn't that reminiscent of the full armor of God? Because we are in spiritual battle. There is people's eternal souls at stake. And we need to stand firm in the day of testing. The night is nearly over. I love how Paul says it moves on. And be encouraged. The return of Christ is closer today than when you first believed. And oh, brothers and sisters, it is much more close today. 2,000 years or more closer today than when Paul and others believed we look forward to the return of Jesus with the reconstitution and rebirth of Israel in modern times it seems like the end times prophecies are falling into place now as they never have done in history in the year 1000 europe especially was turned upside down there was millennial madness they said it has to be the return of christ the calendar's flipping to 1000 it's like the odometer in your car clicking over you know they say this is going to be big But it came and it went. Well, God had much more in mind. Well, I'm thankful He didn't return then or you and I would never have been born or had a chance to respond to the good news of Jesus. Our turn had not yet come. Paul says, be alert as well. Put on the full armor of God, the armor of light. Peter, it's almost poignant when he says, watch and pray. Because he had to learn that lesson the hard way. Do you remember when Jesus went to the Garden of Gethsemane? And He took Peter, James, and John further with Him into the Garden? And He told them, please, I need strength. I need your prayers. Watch with me. Pray with me. And He came back and they were asleep. And He woke them up and He came back again. And they were asleep and He woke them up and He came back again. So let them sleep. They would not watch with Him. They would not stay with him. Jesus says in Mark 14, beginning in verse 37, it says, Then he returned to his disciples, found them sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter, Are you asleep? Could you not keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit's willing, but the body is weak. And friends, Peter speaks from experience. He failed to watch and pray. And so he fell into sin. He betrayed Jesus. He denied His Lord again and again and again. And it wasn't until the events in the shore of Galilee in John 20 recorded that Jesus reinstated Peter into fellowship. The disciples knew that Peter had fled. He knew, they knew that he had denied Jesus. He should be disqualified, we'd say. But Jesus asked him a simple question. Do you love me? Because it was the love that brought forgiveness and restoration. And so Peter says, not only do you and I need, in light of the return of Jesus, for us or for all of us, that we need to watch and pray, but we need to love Deeply, fervently, from the heart. Not just as an afterthought. Not just a a kind word now and then. We need to love. That is the Christian virtue. It's above all other things. It's why we were saved. For God so loved the world. And it's what we have to share with others. That deep love that Jesus gives us. We see it in beginning in verse 8. Peter writes, Above all, above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. And that's a practical expression of love. Love forgives. It covers a multitude of sins. Peter says in this passage that if we love fervently, if we make love a priority for the brethren, brothers and sisters, and our lost neighbors, the love not only is willing to forgive as we've been forgiven, but it also gives of itself. That's what hospitality is. You give of your resources to care for others. And walking in the dust of those Turkish uh, ruins, go through those amazing Roman cities from the time of the Bible, we walked through theaters where Christians were burned at the stake. We walked through incredible 30,000 seat Roman stadiums, freshly excavated, where Christians were put to death for sport. The people in the stands who pronounced jugula, from where we get the word jugular, it means cut their throats. They were accessories to our murders. It was distressing. It made it so real. And yet, we're willing to forgive. We forgive as we've been forgiven. Christians needed hospitality. When they moved with the good news of the Gospel from one town to another, there was no Best Western. There were no Holiday Inns. If they didn't have Christians to care for them, they were lost. Strangers and sojourners in an unloving world. But the phrase that catches our attention, it's often quoted, love covers a multitude of sins. But what does that mean? Is that as shady as it sounds? That there's some sort of cover up going on? Because we know oftentimes, especially in modern political scandals, that the crime itself is often not the worst part. It is the cover up that people often go to jail for. That's not what this is talking about. It's quoting, Peter's actually quoting the Old Testament, Proverbs chapter 10, beginning in verse 11. The mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life, but violence overwhelms the mouth of the wicked. Hatred stirs up dissensions, but love covers over all wrongs. When you love, you will forgive that's what it's talking about but it's using sacrificial language remember how people experienced the forgiveness of god through the sacrificial system they spoke of love covering the sin just as the blood of the sacrifice would cover the seat of atonement god covered our sins john says the blood of christ washes away our sins it's gone When we cover the sins of others, we wash them away with forgiveness, and with love. And who today among us doesn't need that? Who around us as our friends and neighbors don't want to experience that from you and I? Love and forgiveness. Not a cover-up. Cover-ups are exactly the opposite. When our sin is covered by love and forgiveness, It's done away with. In fact, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, we often hear it at weddings, but we need to attend to it every day because it's the life we should be living. We should be living a life of love. 1 Corinthians 13 was written to a church that was fighting over spiritual gifts. Who had the best gift? And Paul says, don't worry about your gifts. Worry about your heart. Do you live a life of love? Paul says in this passage, he says that love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It's not rude. It's not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. When you love, you forgive. When you forgive, you forget. You don't hold it in reserve to remind somebody when they let you down again that they're a serial offender and it makes matters worse. The law courts may do that, but we don't. We keep no record of wrongs. Compare our own hearts to what Scripture lays out for us as how we should be. I find daily I fall short. I'm going to grow in the grace of forgiveness and love, and treating others as God has graciously treated me. The book of Psalms talks about the other side, the cover-up. If we try to cover up sin, well, it can have the terrible consequences of the child abuse in so-called Christian orphanages, the abuse of children in the worst part of the residential school story those cover-ups never end well because the sin is still there. And it's still doing damage. It's doing damage to those sinned against. And if you're covering up your sin today and trying to live one life on Sunday morning, but the rest of the week, you're a different person, a covered-up sin results in a burden and carrying a load of guilt and shame and remorse. God wants to cover the sin with the shed blood of Christ. you confess our sins and He is faithful and He is just and He forgives us our sins and cleanses us from all unrighteousness. In Psalm 32, the psalmist writes, it's not quoted on the screen, but he said when he covered up his sin, he said he kept silent about it. He didn't tell anyone about it. And when he did that, the cover-up, it almost wrecked him. He said, his bones wasted away. He groaned all day long. God's hand was heavy on him and his strength was sapped. But when he confessed his sin and let God cover it, he says, then I acknowledged my sin to you and I didn't cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. And the love of God covers a multitude of sins. We need it every day. The shed blood of Jesus was for every sin of every person that they would ever commit. It was all paid for. Don't carry that covered up sin. Don't carry that load of guilt. Repent, confess, and find restoration as Peter did. And he shares that good news with us. So we watch and pray. We love deeply. And then we're called to share the love Practically by serving graciously, and by say grace, it's kind of tricky. It's the word. It's the word in Greek is charis. Grace and charis mean a gift freely given, graciously given. And I say that because Peter says that God has gifted all of us by His Spirit with spiritual gifts to be a blessing to others, and we're to use those gifts graciously. Peter said he began that passage by saying hospitality. But look how he continues in chapter 4, verse 10. Peter writes, Each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve others, faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, he should do it as one speaking the very words of God, if anyone serves, he should do it with the strength God provides. And when we do it in God's strength, in God's way, this is the result. So that in all things, God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. Amen. And that's what our gifts are for. Unlike the church in Corinth, they're not to be fought over. They're to be used as a blessing to others. That's what the Apostle Paul said. He pointed to it and he said that that our gifts should be used for the common good. It's a powerful phrase. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, beginning in verse 4, Paul writes, there we are. He said there are different kinds of gifts with the same Spirit. There are different kinds of service but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but the same God works all of them in all men. Now to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for what? For the common good. To be a blessing to others. And you know, you'll never feel more blessed yourself when God allows you to be a blessing to others. Oh, you may get tired, but it'll be a good tired. It'll be the best be a blessing to others. So that, friends, is how we need to live, recognizing that Jesus is coming soon. He'll either come for all of us on that great and glorious day, the blessed hope, or He will come soon for you. He will take you home to be with Him. With that in mind, how then shall you live? Is it going to make any difference? Peter says you need to watch and pray Love fervently, love deeply and serve graciously. And then the words of John, the very last words in the entire Bible will come true. We will look forward to the return of Jesus. John writes, And he who testifies to these things says, Yes, I am coming soon. Amen, John said. Come Lord Jesus, Maranatha, come soon. Lord Jesus. Let's pray. And as we pray, I'll call upon the worship team to lead us in a song. And that song, as we sing it, let it prepare our hearts for the Lord's table. As we share together the elements, let's pray. Heavenly father, Lord, thank you for your word it says we live in the last days. The return of Jesus is imminent. And Lord, you give us eyes to see how Lord world events seem to be moving quickly toward the consummation of history. But Lord, for each one of us, life goes by in a heartbeat. As we've heard this morning, Lord, young moms and wives have been taken away in the fullness of life in an untimely manner. And Lord, we recognize that none of us know the day or the hour that our lives will end. Help us to live lives in light of that that make a difference for the kingdom of God To show the love of Jesus clearly and are a blessing to others. We ask all of this in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Friends, I'd invite you to take your fellowship cup and begin to peel back the cellophane, which takes the first of the elements and have that available to you, the wafer. The Apostle Paul writing to that church in Corinth. That I love that Corinthian church because they had so many struggles, and because of their struggles, Paul was able to write a prescription for the solution to their struggles. And and we're able to be blessed by these letters today. One of the struggles they had was they celebrated the communion time, the Lord's Supper, as part of a larger fellowship meal, similar to what we're going to have at our church picnic indoors afterwards. Part of those communal meals would be a celebration and a remembrance of the body freely given and the blood shed for us of Jesus. And yet, the uh, the meals were unequal, the poor had nothing to eat, the rich had much, and so Paul was correcting them. And in the midst of that correction, he gave us a passage that has blessed us to this day. Paul says, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And there we are. We're living in the light of Jesus imminent return we're in the last days we need to live our lives differently and one thing that helps us do that is to come to the lord's table and remember the price jesus paid that we may live lives set free from sin as children of god it's not to say we're sinless but as we grow in grace we seek to sin less every day and become more like jesus So friends, come with me as Jesus invites us to the table of the Lord. First, we give thanks for the body. Jesus said of the bread, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's partake. Mm The symbol of the shed blood of Jesus was the cup, the fruit of the vine, deep red, reminiscent of the blood shed by Jesus. Jesus took the final cup of the Passover meal. It was the cup of the great blessing. but He changed the meaning of it. No longer would God's people be set free from slavery in Egypt, but now, as a child of God, you've been set free from the curse of sin and death. By the shed blood of Jesus, your sin has been covered. It's been washed away. Jesus, when He took the cup, said, This cup is the new covenant in My blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of Me. Let's drink. Amen.